Hello, I'm Mariet Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others, introducing you to wellness professionals ready to inform, assist and inspire. Today's topic is effective communication. Can your parenting style help prevent narcissism? My guest is Tanya Stein, body language expert, human behavior analyst and coach from Alberton. Welcome Tanya. Thank you Mariette. It's really lovely to be here. To our listeners, after our conversation, Tanya will give us her three best tips on human behavior and then it will be fun question time. Tanya, you're a body language expert and human behavior analyst. You and I have recorded an episode on nonverbal communication, but for those who haven't listened to it, could you explain what you do? So, body language is communication. I help and I teach people how we communicate. I host workshops, I teach individuals, one-on-ones, um, corporates, I do talks. It's all about how we communicate. And people don't always understand we think it's just words. It's way more. So body language is one part of it. I'm so interested in human behavior. I do analysis for people on communication on what they are actually conveying besides the words. You know, there's so much more to what we are actually meaning behind the words. So I analyze. I analyze human behavior. I analyze actions. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. That's very evident. Mm. Your work is science-based. Could you elaborate? All right. So when I... Um, started learning about body language. I did my certification course through a company called Science of People. I got to a stage in my life where I didn't understand people. I really didn't. And when I discovered Science of People, it just made sense to me. Science, there's a science to how people work. And what we do is we find scientific research on anything human being related non-verbal related, um, wellness related, anything on well-being. And they take the research, and research is really hard to read. I don't know if you've ever read research. It's really hard to, and then read it and then adapt it into normal life. It's actually quite hard, because scientists are really complicated people. And so what we do at Science of People is we take that research in our lab, and then they, they play with it and they adapt it into bite sizes that we can teach to people and how they can apply it into everyday life. But it has to be research and scientific research, peer-reviewed. It has to make sense first, and then we can apply it. So when we teach people, we first do the science. We teach them the science behind an action, let's say, why it works. Then we teach it to them, and it makes sense. People, people, when people believe science and they see it works, they adapt a method much easier. So I do write exams once a year, which I actually think in the beginning it was quite intimidating at my age, writing exams once a year is intimidating. 
But I actually love the idea because research is constantly changing. And to stay on top of it, you need to be able to write exams. So I, I fear it and I love it because we are stay on top of the latest research. There's new stuff coming out all the time. I mean, neuroscience is amazing. And the new stuff coming out is fascinating all the time. So we stay on top of the latest research. So it's all science-based. I'm very glad we can get a peek mm. at a little part of that today. Mm. Now, our topic, namely, effective communication, can your parenting style help prevent narcissism, is a sensitive and potentially controversial topic. As we know, narcissism is a mental health condition, but we're going to look at it from a specific perspective. We're going to link parents non-verbal communication with a child to the possible development of narcissistic traits and also to the cultivation of empathy. Before we start, I'd like to make it clear that you're not talking from a psychological perspective since you're not a psychologist. You're sharing your expertise on the science of effective communication and in particular non-verbal communication. 100% correct. So I think I need to explain to your listeners how it came to be that I linked communication, narcissism and parenting. You see, I'm always going around talking and teaching and researching. This is what I do all the time. And as I'm going around, there was this current theme coming around all the time. Three things were happening. One... I was really noticing that we are facing an epidemic of miscommunication and people are suffering because of this. Number two, more and more parents were approaching me and asking for advice on how to communicate to their children. And then number three, because I'm always researching and reading and on anything about human behavior, there was a, a reoccurring theme there with words jumping up all the time, narcissism, depression, um, mental illness, suicide. And I thought, mm, something's up here. And I, so I carried on researching a little bit more, reading a bit more. And I discovered some articles. One article from the World Health Organization made me sit up a little bit more. They said depression is definitely on the increase, which we all know. But they said due to narcissism. And I thought, what? Narcissism, there's that word again. That word is somehow everywhere. And I thought, according to the World Health Organization, people are suffering more with depression because they are interacting with narcissists, either a parent, a boss, a partner, and people are falling prey to serious health illnesses because of what these people are creating. I thought, no, man, this is a, a problem. Carried on researching. I wanted to understand where does narcissism come from? What is narcissism? So I did a lot of research on this. And what I found was, was quite frightening. You know, we'll get into that a little bit later. But I understand how communication works. I understand the science behind communication. And I understand how it affects us, our well-being, when we don't communicate well. 
So it made sense to me. And then when I discovered that parents actually create this, I thought, oh, there's a problem. We need to address this. Shall we start with what nonverbal communication entails? So nonverbal is your tone of voice, your vocal power, your gestures, your facial expressions. If we don't know how to use these things, nobody teaches us this. It's not a thing we get taught at school. We get born with it, but we don't know how to use it. It's a social skill. It's part of emotional intelligence. So if we don't know how to use it, it becomes a problem. Parents don't know how to teach their children this. We sort of just get thrown into the thing and say, you know how to do it. We don't. So nonverbal communication. Harvard University published a paper recently and said nonverbal communication makes up 93% of our communication. And that's really high. That same university that published that paper only teaches PhD students 12 minutes of nonverbal communication. In our literature, we like to save 60% of our communication minimum is nonverbal, and only 40% are words. So we focus a lot on the words, and we throw that 60% away. But our brain is so focused on nonverbal that we believe the nonverbal over the verbal. But people don't know this. The science proves this over and over and over. I teach people that little section when you can communicate 100% using your nonverbal and your verbal, your communication skill changes completely. And the next question, which role does nonverbal communication play in our lives? So it's a critical social skill. If we don't know how to communicate effectively, it affects every part of your relationships with everybody, with your children, with your husband, with your co-workers, with everybody. It bonds us. For example, eye contact releases a hormone called oxytocin. We need this hormone. It's a bonding hormone, firstly. It's our feel-good hormone. For both parties, people aren't making eye contact anymore because they're on phones and they're on social media and they're not interacting socially anymore. When I teach parents the science behind eye contact, it's like little lights going on in their heads and they go, ah... It's a problem. And that's why we're facing an epidemic of miscommunication. People aren't communicating properly anymore. We are communicating constantly, but not effectively anymore. And we are suffering because of that. Let's talk about narcissism in a broad context. How would you define narcissism for the purposes of our conversation? Okay, so I have to explain this. I'm not an expert on narcissism. Um, the word narcissism is everywhere. Every second person you speak to talks about this person as a narcissist. I'm almost, I want to say, tired of the word because it, it, it gets thrown around so much. And yet, I actually was listening to a podcast last week. Um, Dr. Paul Conti is an awesome man. He's a psychologist, and he was saying narcissism is affecting up to 50%. And he said 50% of the mental illnesses. So it's really a problem. 
And a narcissist is someone who lacks empathy. I actually feel sorry for them. Understanding narcissism now is a... They have no cohesive self to love. We think it's a self-love, but it's actually not. They have no cohesive self to love. They don't understand. They are self-centered. They admire themselves. They want to be the center of attention all the time. It's really hard to form relationships with these people because they feel no guilt or remorse. They don't understand what they're doing. They just have no comprehensive idea that they are harming people because it's all about them. So the more I've read and studied on them, I sort of, I pity them because it's sad. It's a sad thing that's happened to them. And it's so out of their control. So narcissism, the opposite, like I said, the the word has come to mean self-love, but it's actually the opposite. There's no cohesive self to love. And it's sad to be a human like that. To go through life like that would be hard. So you get different kinds of narcissists. For example, you get the benign narcissist. They don't mind if things go well for you. They don't mind if you go up in life either or if you have nice things. or As long as their things and their life is better than yours, it's okay. And you get different variations. There's a scale. The malignant narcissists, those are the ones that are, they cause the most damage. I mean, they want nobody to have nothing. Everything must be worse for you. You get um, the, the, the vulnerable narcissist. I mean, those people, they, everything in their life is just wrong. You know, uh, being in a relationship with someone like this, they're constantly a victim, constantly. Uh, it's really hard. I was recently, I spent a day with a person that I know that's completely narcissistic and it's draining when I got home I was exhausted you know so relationship with them are really hard I've seen that psychologists talk about narcissistic traits versus narcissistic personality disorder what is the difference and what are we focusing on today so the, the, the difference is, I'd say, traits are not as extreme. The disorder is a mental illness. Um, from what I've researched and what I've understand, there's not any help for these people. You can't change it. They can see therapists. Um, they can try, but we, it can't be changed. This is what's so frightening. The minute something happens in their life, they revert right back to their traits or their, um, their habits. They cannot change this. And this is the thing that scared me the most. Everyone's talking about their traits and their mental illness and the damage they cause, but nobody was talking about how can we stop this? What's causing it? What can we do to stop it? I mean, we can't have a whole world full of narcissists because it's, it's, it's according to the World Health Organization, It's causing a mental crisis. We need to stop this. So my focus is on how can we prevent this? What is the cause? That's what I wanted to know. Where is this coming from? And that's also what what scared me to death when I realized where it's coming from. The causes contributing to the development of narcissism, I read, are complex and include genetics, neurobiology, and environmental factors such as culture and parenting. What has your research shown about parenting styles 
as one possible contributor to the development of narcissistic traits. So this is where the scary part came in. Like all mental health issues, I think, um, not all of them, but I want to say a pretty big amount of mental disorders starts in the formative years, unfortunately. And Freud first made mention of this in 1914. You know, he mentioned narcissism. It's quite strange. But one of his successors, um, I think her name is Karen Horney, she found that narcissism is when parents are overindulging or underindulging. When those children grow up, they crave that attention of overindulging or underindulging. So back in that time already, they started noticing that it's parents. Through my research, I discovered a woman, her name is Dr. Ramani. I can't say her surname. (laughs) She's, She's a clinical psychologist. She's really an expert on narcissism. She actually wrote a book called, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And she said, narcissists aren't born, they are made. And they are made mostly by well-intentional parents. Sometimes parents that are overindulging or underindulging. And I thought, wow, I didn't know this. I am a parent. Further studies by um, author Robert Greene, he wrote the book on laws of human nature, and he found that narcissism is created between the ages of two and five by mostly mothers, sometimes fathers, or caregivers. So this just blew my mind. And I thought, why is no one talking about this? Why don't we know this? Because when I had kids, I remember when I had my children, I really wanted to be a good mom. I read every single book I can. I focused really hard on being a good parent. I wanted to be a good parent. And I remember I never read anything like this. I didn't know. I didn't know. Also, we didn't have social media back then. Yes, of course. You know, so things have been adding on to this. I didn't know. And these findings scared me. Um, There's Dr. Daniel Goldman. He was one of my first books I read on child, child. It's called EQ, Why It Matters More Than IQ. And it's emotional intelligence. And he also mentioned narcissism starts early. And I thought, how? I wanted to understand how does it start? What is it? Narcissism and a lack of empathy. How do we build empathy? What is empathy? I want to understand. And that's why I just carried on. But it did scare me. It scared me for the fact that I don't know. What did I do? Did I do something wrong? My kids are fine. I hope. <laughs> we all hope. But I just thought we need information. Everyone's talking about narcissists, but nobody's talking about how can we stop this. Let's take a specific look at parents' nonverbal behavior and the possible development of narcissistic traits. Could you tell us some of the do's and don'ts parents should keep in mind? So, like I said, Dr. Daniel Goldman, he's, I call him the father of emotional intelligence. And he said... When we build empathy 
we build self-awareness. That's interesting. Yes. Empathy is self-awareness. Because the word empathy comes from, I've understood, comes from a German word. And it means understanding someone else's feelings and emotions. You don't necessarily have to agree with, agree with their emotions or their feelings, but you understand their feelings and you understand how they feel. It's different than sympathy. Sympathy, we, we, we feel sorry for that person, but we are really glad it's not us. Where empathy, you actually understand and you, you feel what they feel. So how do you do that? You are self-aware. Now, emotional, intelligent people can feel what someone else feels. But how do you, how do you train that? Dr. Daniel Goldman, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, starts, he 100% says it starts with the ability to read nonverbal communication. It starts with understanding what is someone's face showing you. It starts with understanding, is their voice happy or sad? Can you pick up what's their voice tone? What is their facial expression showing you? It 100% starts with understanding nonverbal communication. So he 100% says the ability to read someone's nonverbal behavior is where self-awareness starts. You also start learning your own nonverbal behavior. Because people think body language is really reading someone else. It's not. It's actually reading yourself. Because you start understanding, oh, I just pulled a face. Why? Listen to my tone of voice. Why? Something is, is irritating me. When you first understand yourself, that's so much easier to understand other people. So empathy is self-awareness. That's how we build. So when children don't understand they're not looking at their parents. Their parents aren't looking at them anymore. Parents are on their phones, talking to children while they're on phones, looking at TVs. Um, you know, it's frightening. We are not building self-awareness. We're not building empathy. Children, unfortunately or fortunately, learn by example. And so during the workshops, I teach parents social biases, for example. Parents say, no, I'm really good. I, I don't use bad words. I, you know, I try and be really cautious with not teaching my children any bad biases. And then I say, okay, what do you do when you stop at the robot and the beggar comes? What do you do? And they say, no, I say nothing bad. I say, what's your face do? Because your face does it. And you know what your little one's doing? They're watching your face. We have scientific Research that proves social biases are passed on to our children through facial expressions. I never knew that. Yes. No parent knows that. When I teach parents this, they go, oh, Lord, yes. Oh, Lord, that's exactly. We don't know what we're doing. Nobody's teaching us this. It's really important that we learn this. Because you can pull a face. You know, um, it's really interesting. It's so fascinating when you really understand the science behind what we're actually doing and why communication is suffering, why there's an epidemic, we have a problem. So people spend less time interacting, interacting socially. They are on social media all the time, TVs, and it's sad. Why is it so critical that parents or educated in nonverbal communication. You have touched on it. I think most of us are unaware of how easy it has become today 
to fall into these traps. You know, we all have work pressure. We have our own mental health problems. We all have, we are all suffering with something. You know, we are all the product of our parents. I think parents today have a lot more um, information than our parents had. But we all come with our own baggage. We have single parents. There's a lot more single parents out there. It's really hard raising children. You know, and if parents don't know, if we don't fix this, if we don't try and change, I think we're facing a catastrophe. Because children are our future. Not just our future, they're their future. And if we can't fix this, it's going to become a, a problem, not just parents. I do, I think I've told you before, I do a lot of trauma counselling as well. And I counsel parents and children, and there's problems. Children are f- suffering, adult children are suffering. And I'm talking adult children. And from what I've studied, I understand it started in the formative years. And I want to say to the parent, you should have, but I can't say that because Mm -hmm. they didn't know. That's why it's so, I get panicky when I think about, we have to teach young parents. I want to start in preconception years. I actually want to start preconception, teaching parents, Mm -hmm. because we, it's the only way we can change anything. And I think awareness is the first step. 100%. We're not aware. I don't think anybody's talking about this. Well, you are now. (laughs) Which practical advice could you offer parents to, as you put it in one of your blogs, avoid raising future narcissists? So there's so many things, actually, you know, but simple little things, like I, I was speaking about eye contact. We release hormones when we I didn't know this before I did my certification I didn't know I was really scared to make eye contact with people but we release a feel-good hormone called oxytocin it's also a bonding and that's what I said you know think of little kids I go to a restaurant or a shopping center and I watch parents with their children it's fascinating to me I analyze that's what I do I analyze behavior and I watch parents with their children and they'll give them a phone or an iPad And that little child just sits there and there's no oxytocin being released. The parents are tired, I understand. That child is on that screen constantly and it scares me because there's nothing happening there. In those formative years, there's no bonding. When that child is 15, 16, 17, 18, there's problems coming. We know it's hard. Parents suffer. Children suffer. And then they become adults and there's problems. You know, so number one, eye contact is important. But how much eye contact? Now parents think I say, yes, you look at your child all the time when you talk. No. The quality of your communication is important. You know, if you're busy with a, let's say you're busy on your phone and your child wants to talk to you, you can say to them, listen, let me just finish this piece then put down the phone and look at them, make eye contact and speak to them. They Look, children need to understand you can't give too much attention either because also that's where narcissism starts, when we overindulge as well. So let's get back to some of the points. So eye contact is the important thing. Um, we call facial expression. Facial expression is really important. 
looking at their face, looking at what the facial expression actually means. So there are seven micro-expressions that I teach people. I'll give you an example. Um, I look at children and parents in a shop, and this little child's having a tantrum. And there's two facial expressions I love to teach parents. The one is anger, and the one is sadness. So it's really easy when you understand what to look for. When you look at anger, there's two vertical lines that go down the front of the face between the eyes. It's a vertical line. You can clearly see the vertical line. That's the face of anger. Sadness is the the eyes droop. It's a different look. So I watch parents in the shop, and I know it's not a laughing matter. And this child is having a tantrum, and this child is angry. I can see the lines on the face. And the mom will say, oh, he's upset. Give him the toy or give him the sweet. And I'm thinking, I really want to scream at that parent and say, you are rewarding anger. What are you teaching this child? That when you show anger, you will get what you want. That child will grow up as an adult who will use anger to get what they want. If they could understand the facial expression, it's so simple to see. When you show people, it's so simple. You see it so clearly. When you reward anger, you're teaching a habit. It's a bad habit. Parents, when they see this, they go, oh, Lord. It's simple. Cannot reward anger. You need to fix the anger. There's lots of uh, ways to fix that, you know. Lots of ways to um, talk to anger. Then there's the hands. I mean, when you... Talk about the signs of hands. Parents think hands are for smacking. It's not really. You know, when you turn your hand up, palm facing up, your voice tone changes. It becomes softer. If you say to your child, please pick up your toys, and your palm faces up, the tone of voice, the child's brain picks up. Remember, body language is about the brain. The brain is constantly trying to protect us. So when you turn your palm up, your voice tone drops. It comes calmer. The child's brain likes it. I teach this to teachers. Turn your palm up and say to the class, sit down. The minute you point your finger, your voice tone changes. You can actually hear my voice tone become more harsh. It becomes harsher. We don't like, our brain immediately reacts to someone who points a finger at us. The research from Alan Pease is fascinating on what happens to your brain when someone points a finger at you. You don't listen. You literally stop listening. You don't want to listen. So now a parent says, pick up your toys with the finger. That child doesn't want to listen. Why? It becomes contentious there in the house. Problem. Hands, people don't understand. So hands are a thing. Fronting and mirroring. Mirroring, people understand mirroring is like copycating someone. We actually have mirror neurons in our brain. Our brain loves it. Our brain loves it when someone does something that we do because we feel validated then. We feel someone likes us. You don't have to copy everything exactly, just sort of similar. Fronting is when we turn our body towards the person that's speaking to us. Our brain loves it. Our brain feels, oh, someone's interested in me. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was standing in Diskim the other day, and I was first in line. You know, Diskim, you can stand for hours. The queue behind me had a mom and I think a little four-year-old. I could say between three and four years old. 
I want to call her an unconscious mom. At the counters, there's a mom and a little boy also about the same age. And it's fascinating to me to watch people. The mom behind me, I could turn because I was first in line, I could watch these two. This little girl was standing on the chairs where people could sit, you know, that bench. And she was loud and everybody had to listen to her. She was, I want to say, agitated. She's trying to talk to her mom. But she was loud. We all had to listen to the conversation. The mom was talking to the child, but she never once looked at her because she was on her phone. Now she's having a conversation on the phone with whoever, and the child is standing next to her on this chair having a conversation, but there's no real conversation. And I thought it's so sad. And this little girl kept looking at me because I kept looking at her. So she was sort of like trying to talk to me, but to her mom. She wasn't being heard. And I thought, this is really sad. Then I looked at the other mom with the little boy on the counter, and he was sitting in front of her. And she was taking his finger and putting it on her pulse in her neck. And they were looking at each other. And she was teaching him how to feel the pulse in her neck. And then he was feeling his pulse. And they were making eye contact and they were bonding. And I thought, you see the difference in the two parent style? He was dead quiet and he was fascinated and he was learning something, but she was bonding, she was making eye contact. She was entertaining her child, she was keeping him quiet. When we got to the toll later on, those two kids were still there around. That little boy was happy, standing still next to his mom. The other little girl was all over the place because of the quality of attention they got from their parents. It makes a huge difference. The mother with the little girl, she wasn't coping with that child at all. I, I keep wanting to think that child, I don't want to say it, but I keep thinking that child's going to grow up if this mom doesn't change her behavior in how she communicates with that child and how she gives her attention. It's going to be a problem when she's older. So the quality of attention is The quality of attention important. is so important. And, it, you know, I, I, when I teach parents, I say to them, it doesn't have to take you hours. It's just when you bond with your child, make sure it matters. You know, when your child talks to you, if you are busy, tell them I'm busy right now. They need to understand. Children, there's uh, Jordan Peterson um, writes the book and he says, his last chapter is about let children ride skateboards. And the chapter is about we have to let children fail. We can't protect them all the time. They have to make mistakes. And we have to let them learn. We can't mollycoddle them. We can't because that creates narcissism too. Because when we take away all the, the hardship, they don't learn anything. We protect them too much. It becomes a problem. We call them, but parents like that, we call in meshes. They create narcissists because they live so vicariously through their children. They're so involved. They isolate their child so much that their child has no keys of self. They don't know who they are because the parent is... I've seen that when my kids were growing up. There's parents that are so involved in their children's lives that they have no... They don't know who they are. Yes, I, I can think now that they needn't connect to other people or they don't get the chance. They don't get so the they chance. they don't learn how to do it. They that. don't learn. And now imagine that child's a grown-up. What do they need? They need people to pay attention all the time and tell them what to do. And they don't know who the self is because the mom 
I've seen it so many times. And when I read that, I, I realized I can see those moms. You know, it's such a weird thing to think about because it comes from their parents and it comes from their parents and it comes from their parents. We have to stop it somewhere. We have to do better. And this is the thing with parents. We have to do better because we have that information now. A quick note on what I do and why I do it. I'm a content entrepreneur creating podcasts and articles for my own platform and for various magazines and digital platforms. My weekly podcast episodes and the articles on my website focus on emotional health, parenting, love relationships and the life challenges we all face. Each episode and article features a therapist, coach or other wellness professional, so you can get to know them and find an expert who will resonate with you should you need one. After all, online therapy and coaching means we can connect across continents. I love the fact that my website has had visitors from 100 countries so far and that I've featured 90 plus experts. Don't forget the up-close-and-personal articles on my website. They offer you a glimpse of the person behind the expert. If you're a wellness expert who'd like to be featured on my platform, just click on Services. Now, back to my guest. You've mentioned that... Effective communication can also help children develop empathy. Okay, so let me tell you about this study. It's a really interesting study. Dr. Daniel Goldman, they did a study on 1,011 children to see if empathy has any effect on any of these children. And they analyzed them to see which children could read Nonverbals. Which children are good with nonverbals? They found the children who could read nonverbals, whose empathy levels are good, whose emotional intelligence are good. Those kids turned out to be the most popular. They were the most emotionally stable. They did better in the classrooms, even though their IQ wasn't really higher than the kids who weren't emotionally intelligent. They also found the teachers liked these kids better and they did better in the classroom. Their classroom effectiveness was better. So it showed that emotional intelligence and nonverbal communication goes hand in hand and that creates empathy. So it helped your children be better adults, be better human beings. The study was fascinating and they found babies from as early as two to three days old can already read their mom's facial expressions. That's very early. Yes, that's where we start. But that's, that's to survive, yes, I suppose. Yes, 100%. We are born with nonverbal communication. From about, they say, from about two to three months, two to three months before we can actually start speaking, we use nonverbal communication. We can show we want food. We can point to things. We use nonverbal communication. And the more fascinating thing about this is our brain is prehistoric brain. It's still the same brain. It is made to protect us. Our brain is 
constantly scanning and looking for ways to protect us. It reads non-verbal first. It really reads non-verbal first. For example, we have a fear receptor in our brain. If we don't see someone's hands, first off, the fear receptor is triggered in your brain. So we panic until we see the hands. Because from our caveman days, if we didn't see someone's hand, we panic. Because is he carrying a weapon? Is he coming to kill us? What's happening? That same brain is still there. Our brain is constantly looking to protect us. It's still the same thing. We have forgotten about this. Mm-hmm. We just need to re-educate this now. And it's, it's really, it's like little lights when I, when I teach people this. They go, yeah, we've known this all along. It's just like reawakening a skill that we all have. You've mentioned your workshops for parents to help them communicate in a way that can help children develop empathy rather than narcissistic traits. Could you tell us, give us more details about your workshop? So the workshops I've done, and I've actually reached out before our talk now, I actually reached out to two parents just to find out, you know, ones that have already done the workshop, just to find out how is it going? And they're still applying everything I've taught them. And it does make a difference. They did say the, the skills they've learned. And this is what's the beauty with this is you apply it with everybody, not just your children. I'm sure. Because it's a life skill. Mm-hmm. And they do definitely find the communication has changed. The, the one couple have teenage children. And they say they understand the problems happened earlier. The, the one couple, they... Their story is a little different. The mom who raised the two, the older two, um, had substance abuse. And so there was a lot of problems there. By the time the father got control of the children, they were already in their teens. So he, he was battling with the communication with his kids. It has changed completely. He's definitely communicating better, but there's still a lot of work to be done because there's a lot of trauma there. Um, but they have a little one, him and his new wife, and their communication with her is amazing. You know, so the family's working on it. The other couple, they have little ones, and they say the communication is definitely much better. They try not to go to a restaurant and give the child a phone to play. They talk at the table. They have com- conversations. But it's not all the time. You know, these workshops are fine. I don't want to say I've found the cure to narcissism. It's not at all. There's so many other, other factors involved. There's nutrition, there's exercise, there's, there's a lot more. But at least there's something. At least I feel like we need to start somewhere. At least communication is something. You know? Yes, I, I think it's a very basic thing when, we, when it comes to connection. 100%. And that is what we have a problem with in, in our age. And, and with technology just taking us yes. further and further away from each other, it, it scares me. Mm-hmm. It scares me. Like I said, I, I, I sometimes when I think about this subject and I watch parents and I, I get so scared. You know, in the early days when I first started my, did my certification, I just blurted out to people. <laughs> you know, I would just say, oh, you're doing the wrong thing. And I had to learn the hard way that you can't. Yes. You can't tell people what to do. You can only really help people if they ask. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Yes. Where can listeners learn more about your work and your workshops? 
So on my website, I have a website, The Art of People. It's www.theartofpeople.info. Um, my phone number's on there, my email. They're more than welcome to reach out. I do workshops all the time. This year's a wedding coming up, so this year's a little touch and go for me there. But anyway, really, they're more than welcome to reach out. And I will attach the link to your website to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Tanya, we're coming to your three tips on human behavior. Mm. I'm very curious. So, you know, there's this thing that I've learned and I've actually, I've actually got sticky notes all over my house. My kids, I drive my kids crazy. So this one is something that I say, nature loads the gun and nurture pulls the trigger. Oh. So when you think about it, we all have defects and problems and we all get born with things. It's the nurture that pulls that trigger. You know, you get psychopaths, that someone's born a psychopath. Although recently I've discovered they're actually not born a psychopath. But it's the nurturing that shapes them. You can have a psychopath that's quite normal, that live a normal, healthy life. And you get a psychopath that murders. It comes from the nurturing. So it's really important to me that sentence, you know, I think people need to think about that. Then the, the next thing that's always prevalent in my mind is we need to be kind because you don't know what the person you're speaking to is suffering from. We are all suffering with something. I don't think I know any single person who hasn't got something that they're suffering with. Everyone has something. And I think that makes us all human. And that's a nice thing. And I think the last one, and it, it, it's, it has to start with you. You cannot change a single human being if you cannot change yourself. And like I said earlier, I've realized I cannot help anybody. I can only help myself. And if I can do better, then I can only help you do better. If I'm a better human being, then it's a ripple effect. It goes bigger and bigger. I can only help myself. I can't try and change you. I can only change myself. Thank you. Those are very mm. wise. May I ask you your fun question? Yes, of course. Tanya, in an ideal world, if you could be gifted with a cruise on any river in the world, where would you like it to be? Must it be a river? No, it can, <laughs> it's a fantasy world. It can be elsewhere. I was looking this morning. I was looking... I, I'm not even sure if it's a river. In Venice, they have that river that know. runs. I don't know. Is it a river? I have no idea. Uh, I was just looking, and they, they were showing from a, a bird's eye view, and I was looking at that river going through Venice. I don't even know it's a river. It was so beautiful. And I thought, oh, that's where I want to go. Oh, but you've got your answer ready, eh? <laughs> that's just by accident I was looking at it this morning. I must really go and look because I love reading Donna Leon's crime novels and mm. they, they all take place in Venice. It was beautiful, It was, but it's the first time I've actually seen a bird's eye view of it. And it, mm. I don't even know what Venice is. Venice is a little island, but it's beautiful. And it was like this little thing running through there it's like a little looks like a, it's not really a river i think it's the ocean probably running through there but it was it was beautiful i'm just like oh, i want long to go on there i'll go and take i a love look. that place i love italy i would love to go the amalfi coast i follow they show me on instagram constantly instagram is my favorite my favorite social media and they send me these the amalfi coast 
photos all the time and I just dream of that place all the time. I would love to go and retire there. I would even live in a one-bedroom, tiny little place. <laughs> just If I can just live there, it would be perfect. I can relate to that. <laughs> it's so beautiful there. I'll just go for walks all the time there. I don't care. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya, for sharing your insights on this very unusual topic and for making us aware of the importance of our nonverbal behavior. You're welcome. And I hope, and my wish is that we can start changing it. I mean, we've got to start there. I just wish and hope maybe we can make a change. Thank you. To our listeners, it was good of you to join us. I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this podcast series and rate it where you download your podcasts. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. You're welcome to go to my website www.mariehitsneiman.co.za for this episode's podcast notes and for free articles and podcast episodes on love and intimacy, parenting, emotional health and managing life's challenges. To follow me on Facebook, just search for Mariette Sneiman, journalist. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneiman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 